0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Sam Womack as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm gonna to be in conversation with an actress who has been star of stage and screen for over 20 years. She even represented Britain in the Eurovision Song Contest and was part of one of the most controversial soap storylines ever. Tonight, I'm gonna to be in conversation with Sam Woman. Thanks for doing this, Sam. That's all right.
0: Thanks for
1: having me. It's funny because obviously a lot of people will know you for EastEnders and for other things that that you've done that will come on to, like Game On and so on. But I had a little look at your acting career and you and you may not even know this yourself but you're credited with being in something on telly or, or making a film every year since 1990
0: That makes me feel really tired but <laughs> that's, that's, that's cool But from But yeah.
1: from, a, from a profession that's so fickle and so difficult yeah, that's to sustain, a long time, yeah. that's an amazing thing.
0: Thanks, I didn't know that
1: But what made you want to be an actress in the first place anyway?
0: Um, I don't know I don't know if I ever thought that that's what I wanted to do. I spent a lot of time on cruise ships when I was younger. My grandmother was a choreographer for QNOD and when my, my family split, when my father left when I was about five, I spent a lot of time on the QE2 and that was in the 70s. So, you know, the QE2 in the 70s was this incredible playground of incredible wealth, talent. You'd get all the vaudeville acts, you'd get huge big bands, and I grew up in the bowels of the ship.
1: You, you mentioned your mum and dad split and you were about five. Yes. And then, and then you're, you're on the QE2. So where was your mum?
0: So I grew up in Brighton, I was born in Brighton in yeah. 1972, and I really remember 76, that hot summer of 76, because my father, uh, Noel Jackson, was a singer-songwriter and he was discovered by Cliff Adams who uh, was the manager for Fleetwood Mac so my childhood at that point was really bohemian full of musos full of guitarists not not the best parenting in terms of you know being they they weren't particularly coherent most of the time But they were glamorous and they were wild. And the 70s was just, a re- musically, was an amazing time. So I grew up in this very bohemian uh, lifestyle, but I was always aware that my father was a very enigmatic man, quite hard to pin down, very beautiful, um, a hit with the ladies. And my mum, I think, was um, in awe of him. We were all in awe of him, uh, but he would spend hours on the guitar very hard to communicate with him. In fact, one of the ways I could be closest to him was I. I would sit on his lap and he'd have the guitar in front of me. And if I just sat there as quietly as possible, I could kind of hang out with him for as as long Mm. as I could because he'd just be lost in the music.
1: So, as a child, then, you're fascinated by the glamour and the showbiz and... I suppose the world of what goes on on the stage through that experience of being on the QE2 as well.
0: I think so, but what's weird is that I kind of shied away from performing when I was, I left home really early. I left home when I was 15. I went and got a job in Camden Palace, which is Coco's now, so it was a kind of nightclub in Camden. I lied about uh, my age.
1: just stop there, though? When you said you left home at 15... Yes. Why did you leave all at 15? That, that, I mean, that, that's young, that's before you finished. I know, doing.
0: I felt like I was so old then. I have a 16-year-old now who can barely tie yeah. up his own ben. shoes and I'm thinking, <laughs> how does that work? I don't know. I was really mature. I had a strong personality. I hadn't had an easy time with my dad leaving and I hadn't stayed in touch with him uh, throughout the course of the time. I missed him. So there was a sense of abandonment in me that came to me, so... Uh, a, I probably wasn't the easiest teenager. I was um, headstrong. I couldn't be told anything. How did you find that?
1: Of, it, but now, you, know, you mentioned Ben as a teenager, <coughs> you mentioned your own children. You've got a situation now where you've got people in your house doing exactly what you did. <laughs> and
0: Ben's me, yeah. you know, Ben is me. It's like oh, looking it's at myself, house, oh, my... It's the f- most frightening thing I've ever I know, encountered.
1: I know, it's that thing when you're arguing with your own kids yeah. and you know of you with them, that you'd be saying exactly what they're saying yeah. to you and your dad would be telling them the same thing. That's yeah. right. I I, I find myself, I've become my dad and I'm saying things to my kids and as it's coming out my mouth, I'm thinking, I know my dad said that to me. Yeah, I
0: think I've become my step dad in because he was more of the disciplinarian than my mum and I'm quite I'm not not tough with Ben but of the two of us I'm probably the one that's harder on the kids. When I did the programme Who Do You Think You Are? It's a really weird experience but what you start to do is you start to look at your family and the similar family traits that are with all of us. My family every single one of them had massive issues with abandonment. Most of them had been left by either a parent or both parents right the way back. Like if you were to look at it as a tapestry of just all of them. And my mum had that through no fault of her own. My grandmother, her mother, that was the choreographer, um, was left by her husband. She had three kids. She had to go out and work. So she had to place her three children in various different places. Some were nice, some weren't. And so my mum had a very strong sense of abandonment. My father, my, my biological father, had a terrible time as a kid, really awful. And he went to a reform school when he was about nine years old. Something had happened I can't remember what. He wasn't getting on with his stepfather. Some accident had happened where somebody had got hurt and they gave his mum the option of keeping him at home under close watch or sending him to this place called Park House School for Boys. And he went there and I, th- and I, I don't think he ever recovered from that place. He was beautiful. He looks very like my son, um, my father, very blonde, very, very attractive. But really sensitive, um, but quite um, quite shy, and he went to a very very brutal place, and and I think that my dad always struggled with his sense of self-belief after that place and my father ended up taking his own life about five years ago when he battled with alcohol very typical of that time a lot of those guitarists around Fleetwood Mac and whatever there was a lot of drinking there was a lot of drugs and I think he just lost his way you know even my stepfather was in a boarding school and was was raised by Jesuit priests. So every single parent figure that I had had been abandoned, Never and their parents before yet. them, and their pa- so when I did Who Do You Think You Are, and I looked at it all, I was like, it was really shocking to me.
1: But you, you'd had some degree of stability. Your dad had left. Your stepdad had come in. there had been a decade. Okay, you'd moved around, mm. but your mum and stepdad were together. And then at 15, which like, I think most parents would say that's a horrendously young age. They were
0: struggling with their own things and they'd had their own hardships because of their childhoods. So they were coming to terms with their own stuff and...
1: But was there a Was the a point where you said, I'm just leaving, I or did the everyone go last time that you went?
0: I think I came back. There was a big argument in, we'd gone on a holiday in Turkey, and I came back and I just thought, it's just not working. So I packed my bags in and just... I moved in with a friend in Hendon, and then I left school. I thought, I'm not doing this, this is stupid. And I did. I went out and got a job within three weeks and completely lied about my age. I think I was almost running the, the bar... 16. I thought I was 21 or whatever. You got a job in a bar? At Camden Palace.
1: At 15. Yeah.
0: This Sorry, like... Camden Palace, but it doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. They're not going to get into trouble. It's Coco's now. But I was earning a really good wage, and I got myself a flat in Maidervale that has a that so has a. a bit. <laughs> this, this is like some Dickensian story. No, it's like not. You're a child. Well, years I, I, but child. I wasn't. You see, I was very, very impatient to just get out there and start working, and I did, so and well, I did well. well. Yeah,
1: but. Which is fine. It's all right when you're saying, look, I'm going to leave the house now with my rucksack and I'm going to do
0: well. (laughs) But you leave
1: the house and go, well, my 15-year-old daughter's gone... I mean... Did your mum try and keep it or yeah, did you? Yeah, just... there was still
0: contact and whatever, but they knew me well enough to know that if I'd made my mind up, there was not much that they could do about it. And like I said, my mum at that point had got quite ill. She'd had my sister, uh, Zoe, and she got quite sick. So she, they were dealing with their own stuff. And we were all arguing quite a lot then. So I think it was a relief to all of us just to give us all some space.
1: By the way, I've got to tell you this, yeah. you mentioned your sister, Zoe. Zoe. Yeah, if you ever look into into you, if you ever Google you... Oh, it, no. No, it's... No, is, this yeah, the, yeah.
0: is this the Janus? Is that well, the sibling? Yeah. You... <laughs> I can't it's believe it's you've seen I know, that. I couldn't believe. Really tell everybody what it is. <laughs> on Wikipedia, my father's name was Noel, because he was born on Christmas Day. His second name was Janus. And so they've got on Wikipedia that I had a sibling called Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> you <have> to <laughs> <laughs> Hugh Janus. <laughs> Hugh Janus. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, literally... And it's still on I, there. Am I not think it's still on camera, there. the producer, <laughs> and Karen, the go, look, we, we've got a problem, because really I think there's only one sibling, but there's another one here <laughs> called you. I mean, she was. She did. Oh, that's it's a joke. Isn't it? I, I think it might be a joke. Hugh I Jay. do
0: remember. Um, I was doing Greece years. I think I was seventeen. I was doing Greece at the Dominion, and uh, they had. It was Shane Ritchie was doing it at the time with me, and they had our names. You know, Shane, Samantha, Ritchie, Janus, and the J had fallen off. <laughs> Janus. <laughs> so I think. He either suggested it or did it, took the R off Richie, so it said itchy anus. <laughs> 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 you know, so I changed when I got married, the second time I changed my name to Walmart oh, because work? there's far less comedy value.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the, you said you left home at 15 or a job in a bar, and you, in your words you said you did well. I and did you well. did well. Between leaving the house with the rucksack and the bag and going to your friend's house, <laughs> uh, and Three years to your age of 18. Yeah. You've then entered the Eurovision Song Contest.
0: Okay, that makes no sense. I see how you, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, that it yeah, makes exactly. no sense. Exactly. Okay. There,
1: there, there's a little bit there that if this was a job interview, I'd say your CV doesn't add up in okay, this. Okay, thing.
0: okay. So I did really well in Camden Palace. I earned really good money. I got myself a beautiful flat, Clive Court in Maidavelle, beautiful ported blocks, earning so much money, being really responsible. And then at 16, 16 and a half, I met a very good-looking, handsome, but totally dodgy boyfriend. Can't think of another way to say it, dodgy boyfriend. And he was really bad news. And we there's a year that I just I don't even think about. In South London, we moved to Penge. He got me out of Camden Palace and I went to live with him and things just got really bad from there. He was really controlling. Uh, how do you mean bad? Well, he was just controlling. He was, I think, quite jealous. And it was just a very bad year for me. And so he drained most of my money uh, and got me out of... The nightclub is that way that controlling people will do is just removing you from all of the things that you know so that they have complete control which he did and i only stayed with him for a year but the tail end or a year and a half but the tail end of that i had no money and sylvia young who runs a theater school which is the school i've been attending when i left at 15 sylvia was a kind of an incredible figure in my life she always believed in me from day one and she Popped up throughout periods of my life, always, just when I needed her and went. And the Eurovision was a gig. It was a paid gig. I needed the money because he was taking everything. And she said, well, I've got this session singer that will pay you to come and sing a song. Just session it. Just come into the studio. So I rocked up, totally disinterested in what I was doing. Just wanted the money and then was going to go back to penge <laughs> and, uh, and as I walked in, whoever the writer was, I forget his name now, said... Wow, do you want to sing the song? And I was like, is it more money? (laughs) And uh, they said, yeah, if you win, it will be more money. And I walked into that situation completely unassuming. Like, it was over there, and I'm making phone calls and sorting out paying my rent and whatever, and I'm saying, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And all of a sudden... The press attention was just... I had i had no idea that was coming my way. Because for me, it was just a paid job. I didn't expect to win for the, you know... So, so you won the
1: competition to do this the song yeah, for your affair and then entered the Eurovision song. And then they dragged
0: me around on this little kind of gold, you know, nose ring, dragged me around from interview to interview, you know, putting me in these awful clothes. I was just like... Please help me. Yeah, but
1: or... you did come 10th, June 10th. Oh,
0: it was just, yeah. Don't but... say Don't that. Come on, that's just Listen, seriously. for this country, and Eurovision concert.
1: we'd say that next year. You're on the left side of the board. We and haven't I, seen I... that for years. <laughs> <laughs> so, also at this time, you know... You, you did a lot... Of, you started being asked to do modelling. Yeah, you so... F- yeah, the FHM cover yep. and so on. So that
0: came slightly later. So FHM kind of came with the game on territory. Yeah. So that started this profile. And very quickly, lots of work was coming in. I'd got rid of the dodgy boyfriend, you'd be pleased to know. So I was concentrating then on just kind of making a career for myself. But still, I, I wasn't very focused. I didn't have this kind of burning ambition. I just wanted to be safe. I wanted to be OK. I wanted to have a home. And oh. so... so somewhere along the line all well, this work started coming, but I'm not sure if I ever really appreciated the work that came my way. I did it, and I did it to the best of my ability. But
1: what work was it? Because that's you being a pop star, and then shortly afterwards, you don't seem to have done a lot of pop star work. You seem to have gone well, then the almost acting simultaneous works... into acting.
0: Yeah, well, the... so I was with an agency at that time, with yeah. Sylvia's, and with at that time, things like Jekyll and Hyde with Michael Caine came yeah. in, a John Le Carre novel that was being televised with Ronald Pickup. So then this kind of quite quirky acting career started to take off. Um, and then Game On came, and Game On was suddenly this big cult hit.
1: But there was also, like like with Game On, um, where your character Mandy...
0: Shagga Wilkins. Yeah, cool yeah.
1: You know, plays a very loose lady, as it were. Yeah. It's very funny. And I watched some of the episodes, and to be honest, I didn't see it at the time. And the, the writing's quite, Short, cu- f- quite it? full on. It's, for you know, its
0: time, it was really full. Yeah, yeah.
1: It was massively successful. It went for a good few series. It was not nominated for a BAFTA yeah. for the Best Sitcom. The, the other people who were nominated was absolutely fabulous. Father Ted yeah. and Only Fools and Horses yeah. at once. So, I mean, that was a hell of a bumper year. Was,
0: it was, and, and we were really... I mean, we. you know, you look back on some of those times where there's a perfect job... Yeah. And that, this was one of those jobs. It just was pretty perfect from beginning to end, really.
1: So you did Game, on you? The Babes in the Woods, which was a similar kind of, I suppose, yeah. humour and stuff. And then you went, I want to move in a different way because that's just not working for me. How easy was it for you to do that?
0: Loads of comedy stuff was coming through at that time and I just turned it all down. But then occasionally I'd get, you know, dramatic roles, but they were hiring me because it was me and it was going to get made if I was in it. And I kept thinking, well... They weren't really good enough. And then I think I read the script for Liverpool One. Liverpool One was a really gritty police drama written by a phenomenal uh, guy called Simon Burke, who's, to this day, his dialogue is just, it's incredible. It's a gift. And I just, I devoured the dialogue. Like, it was so satisfying to get my teeth into it. I understood it. I knew how to play it and I nailed it. It was so satisfying to walk onto a set and just be kind of immersed in the work without anyone worrying about what I looked like. It was just, it was such a relief.
1: But that's where you met Mark. Yeah. And he was married at the time, and yeah. again you came in for a bit of time. Well, we both present, were, yeah. we both
0: were, and we fell in love. And, yeah. um, you know, we were going to see what happened and keep it to ourselves because we weren't really sure what we wanted to do and then the press leaked it and so it was what it was and it was pretty painful for everyone. That was 17 years ago. Um, And that's always, you know, that's always hard when you're having to try and live out your personal life Mm. um, through the newspapers.
1: This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want the home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: What's it like, two actors being married? When you've got two people who are in it and then you've got kids and you've got a family, you've got all that media pressure, you've got all that other things going on, but also that innate thing of any performer wanting to be liked or be a part of something.
0: Well, it's funny because the things that have always motivated me the most is home, animals, kids. That's been my main focus most of my life. And Mark is much more ambitious than I am loves the job. I love the job but not like he loves the job mm. um, and interestingly that makes it very complicated when I'm working and he's not, we want yeah. it the other way around. It's not easy mm. and also you've got no stability. You know, two kids, we could at any given moment either one of us could be off and somewhere yeah, or out
1: of work and so or
0: out of work. Yeah, we haven't got one stable income yeah, either. Yeah.
1: But the thing that did give you some stability
0: dun dun, dun. Was oh, this. Yeah, <laughs> you're not gonna be. Oh god, <laughs> you're so tacky. <laughs> you are so That's not tacky. tacky. I said so tacky. We were looking, at... <laughs> and that's not tacky.
1: <laughs> we were looking at so many things and so many clips because you you were in it for nine a... years. Yeah, and. Loads of big storylines, and we go, We can show this clip. We go, I said, No, play the music. That's classy. <laughs> what
0: you that's said. a
1: lovely way of introducing EastEnders, and you've gone, That's tacky. tacky. That, oh, yeah. Jesus, that's, that's really, yeah. really show my colours. That. <laughs> but that music, what is it, three, four times I a mean, week? You must have been sick.
0: We never hear the music. We never hear the duff duffs, do we? Yeah. We call them the duff duffs. People are always fighting to get the duff duffs, you know. Duff Duff Duff's Duff, being... just meaning you're the last face on the screen. Yeah, you mean going... you're the one going... I hated them. because He's you He's have... pregnant, ma'am. And then you... Duh, Duh, yeah. Duh, 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 Duh. And you have to hold the look. So I can't do that. I'm, t- I'm the world's <laughs> worst at... I was the worst at Duff Duff. Steve McFadden's got them down because he just looks away. best thing you can do, the worst thing is to kind of just... <laughs> I do remember one of my favourite duff-duffs, I think, was on a grass snake or some kind of python that was in Dot's handbag, and it actually the duff-duff was on the s- <laughs> snake's <laughs> face. Because the snake like, could hold the, lock. the snake knew. It's, like, paranoid. <laughs> um, that was my favourite duff-duff of all time. But, yeah, so... That was an insane job to get.
1: If you got any sense when you're going into a soap of how long you're actually going to be and how big no. your character's going to be? I
0: knew, I knew that they wanted it to be big. Um, and at the time, you know, everyone around me was saying... You can't do soap, you know, you won't work after. And you, you know, and, and also, you've, I was quite established at that point. Um, and so I went for this meeting, and they were, the scripts were so great at that point. They were these feisty, um, she was a kind of no holes barred, very strong female. So went in and screen tested with Rita, who plays my sister. And I just, something about her, we just, clicked instantly and I kind of fell for her and it sounds silly but I I just had this instant chemistry with her and I knew it I knew sometimes you know you get those things and you just know how to play something I just had a really strong inherent understanding of who this woman should be they hadn't devised the character completely yet they'd had ideas But I wanted to make her darker. Initially, she was, you know, this kind of Ibiza babe. They'd gone off to wherever, had run a bar in Ibiza. Very bright colours, very loud. And I said, well, that's fine for one of them, but it's going to be boring if it's both. Let's make her darker. And we started to make her darker and darker and darker and this kind of really traumatised, you know, complicated character. And I I loved it. I loved her. As, As an actor,
1: you know, if you're in a film, you come, you do a few days, go back, a few days off go back you know if you're in the theatre you're recreating the same mm-hmm. thing every night but if you're in a soap I mean it's a job isn't it it's, it's you turn craft. up every day and there's new scripts new storylines. Do, do you get better as an actor through that experience or do you think it drains you of your ability to grow can it's I just a... pause? Because yeah. that was a fucking good question. That was... <laughs>
0: Are you pleased with yourself? Do the duffed up again oh, yes. just to nail it.
1: Yeah, I should have had the duffed up on the end of the question like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is a good question, John, and I'll answer it. Um, everything about soap, you have to forget everything you've done. You can't do character continuity because things change so quickly. Yeah. You can't base everything in your character because they change so frequently and they do things that they wouldn't have done the year before. So that John York always said that, I remember that, saying a successful soap character almost has to have no memory. You can't keep referring back to what you did because you can't keep going otherwise. So that's weird. If you're someone that's fighting for the truth and what your truth is, that's complicated.
1: Also, do you have to hand it over to the producers and the writers or can you say, look, my character wouldn't do that even though you've written this because it suits your story? Depends who's
0: producing. Yeah. Depends if it's sometimes it's more collaborative and then other times it's not collaborative and you're just told what to do and get on with it. Now having a better understanding of me and my past, I didn't take to the latter because I felt very protective of the character. Uh, and so I was nervous when the sensationalism started to kind of come too frequently, you know, uh, the, the baby abduction. It was well documented that I'd left after that because I felt like i just, it just crossed the line. Mm too much. She, the character had suffered a cot death that I felt was enough. I didn't feel that we needed more than that. That to me was more than enough content to work with. And then there was a more complicated and slightly more sensational storyline where she ended up mistakenly kidnapping another baby and, and then replaced it as her own, which to me was complicated for was lots it? of different reasons. I'm not sure where I stand on whether we should have done it or not. I'm not completely sure. I mean, it was a very successful... In terms of Soap, it was a very successful storyline. It got very, very high viewing figures. And you have to remember that that's what Soap trades on. They trade on viewing figures.
1: Yeah, but what struck me about it, and I know that this was happening because, you know, Mark told me at the time, is that in the street, people were reacting to you. As if you were Ronnie the character.
0: Well, people have always had problems with soap. It's very different. So I had a lot of recognition before I went into EastEnders. People would recognise me, but there was a certain invisible wall between me and them. When you are in someone's living room four times a week, having breakfast, being in bed, getting married, getting divorced, and they're watching that person over and over again there's a sense of ownership that so many people have lived with that character for such a long time so what happened is they got really angry about it they got angry that she wouldn't do something like that people that loved the character and got really cross so I decided at that point I thought right and maybe at the end of where this character can go to she's Got really dark. She got really twisted. So decided to leave, to have a break, to rest the character, and that was all good. And I went back, and I did South Pacific. Went back on stage. Um, and so anyway, when I went back the second time, I'd asked if she could not be as dark. I said I'd go back a year later or a year and a half later, but didn't want to go into any of that dark, sensational stuff for a while. But then I was—I think I was back for three or four months, and she ended up killing someone that. I draped her, and then I tried to crush someone in the back of a car, like, three months after that, so... So it got lighter. It got much lighter. (laughs) (laughs) got much lighter. That's when your
1: comedy time and could come in.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's when I used my comedy (laughs) power. Yeah, it was amazing. And so, um, ultimately, it ended up with a character being killed. That decision, again, in the soap,
1: where you go, let's kill the character, they said, we've got to kill it. Did you go, thank God for that? No,
0: I was devastated. Why? Because I wasn't planning to leave at that time. I was waiting to meet the new producer. He was coming in. I was excited because I felt like she'd got really dark and really become over-sensationalised. So I thought, with this new guy coming in, great. I'd heard that he wanted to take it back to kind of reality, less murders, less stuff. And I was thinking, great, that's right up my street. And And so I met him the first time and he went, yeah, I agree. She's, yeah, she's too dark. I said, me too. I think she's so dark. And he said, well, I completely agree with you. So we're going to kill her. And I was like... (laughs) Great way
1: of resolving everything. First every time problem, I ever met
0: him. But I knew that that storyline had been, some of the writers had, um, I'd heard had had that storyline for a while, said that they felt unable to write for the character anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I had to drown myself. That was really hard, having to kill someone that I loved. Not easy. I kept thinking, if I just keep coming up to the surface and breathing, <laughs> they can't film it. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: Every time we bring someone on, we ask them to bring on a picture. Hmm. Uh, and this is the picture that you've brought, mm. who's your dad. That's my dad. And earlier, earlier, you've mentioned throughout the interview how significant he was, but also how distant he was mm. and, and how troubled he was that mm. he, you know, he took his own life. Mm. Of all the pictures that you could have, mm. why, why did you pick a picture of your dad? Because he seems to me the, the person who you, you couldn't have and could never have had
0: because I understand him. I, well, I was so like my father. Every time I met up with him over the years, we had a very kind of um, sporadic relationship. I've met a lot of people now that, because when somebody in your life takes their own life, you naturally start to talk to other people that it's happened to. And so in the last few years, I've had to deal with suicide it's such a strange death suicide you can't ever come to terms with it in the same way as a natural death because you don't understand it and you don't know if there was anything that you could have done to prevent it my father had left three messages on my phone after my wedding to say call me and I didn't because he behaved badly at my wedding he was drunk. Or the demons had already taken hold on my wedding day. I remember seeing him on my wedding day and looking at him thinking, something is not right. And I avoided him, the whole... Because I was frightened. I thought I couldn't gauge him, but something was unhinged in the eyes.
1: Had you seen that look before? It's,
0: uh, fleetingly. Like, if he had a drink, occasionally he'd have this kind of look that would take hold. And it wasn't like him. He was this soft, gentle guy. But then there was something... Anger inside he'd been left in a reform school at nine he was angry but he just didn't want to show it most of the time because he was he was a nice guy but that kid that had been left you know was angry and so that would come out every now and then and so now I like I have a sense of peace bizarrely with him that's taken me a while to get to but he just couldn't take it anymore and some people just can't take it They can't take the world the way it is. They can't take themselves in the world the way that they are. And he needed to go. And there's a sense of peace that I have now. Selfishly, I would have liked him to have been here for me and my kids, obviously. It's like a second abandonment when he left when I was five. And then when he killed himself, it felt like the same thing all over again. But... I've spoken to so many people now who uh, have had people that have taken their own lives. Depression being this massive thing that I never really understood Mm. before. I'm now in contact with so many people and speak to so many people. All different kinds of people, you know, young boys, women who are bullied, people that just find it too difficult, too painful. And sometimes I understand that, you know, I get that. I get that if you're that sensitive, the easiest way might just be to check out.
1: The three messages that he left on your phone.
0: Just call your father, Sam. For God's sake, call your father. It's the only time I've never called him back. It's the only time. It's the only time. I was because I was a pushover for my dad because he was charming. Whatever he needed, whatever he'd done, I'd always forgive him because he was this kind of, as I said, enigmatic, beautiful soul. Really, just a beautiful human being but that time he'd behaved badly and it was my wedding day and I Mm. and I as much as I understood that he was in a dark place I was hurt and so for the very first time I actually went no I'm going to draw a line here until he calls me sober or until he changes his behavior and I paid the ultimate price you know that must have
1: been hard for you to take though
0: yeah, hugely hard, because it when, made me
1: question... You when you're talking, now you've you, obviously found the piece that you needed to, to understand it and not blame yourself, because perhaps if it hadn't have been there, it might have been another time. You will
0: always blame yourself. The, the, the awful thing with suicide is you never know. I was speaking to someone the other day whose son had killed himself, and she found him, and hers is much more recent, and I was talking to her in great detail about how we felt, and that was the one thing thing that was just overwhelming with all cases of suicide is that you will never know if you'd said this if you'd done that if you'd done that differently and we all survivors of suicide all have that you go through every single detail would it have changed the outcome no one knows did they mean to do it my dad didn't leave a letter did he mean to do it Mm. no one knows it's hard it's very very hard to process you know but it's it's been long enough now where I can look at his picture and I can smile now. I mean, I really can.
1: Did your kids know him?
0: Uh, ben remembers him. Yeah. Playing the guitar, that was him at his best. He just sit down and play the guitar. Mm.
1: It's funny when you when you talk about all the things you've talked about and this sense of abandonment and this thing that of being abandoned all through your life. And it seems now when almost the ultimate abandonment by going away has brought you back and made you more secure.
0: Yes, yeah, almost
1: Seems that's what you're saying.
0: Yeah, strange, isn't it? That suicide would lead to that. That's weird. But I don't know why it's worked out that way, but I feel okay now. I feel really okay. I feel like I understand it. And actually, now I can't think of it any other way. He was so vain, my dad. You know, he grew up in the 70s, this beautiful guy, and he hated getting older as well. He couldn't understand people, he couldn't understand people doing bad things to each other. And he was the ultimate hippie, really.
1: It's good, though, in many respects, that you talk about it because it is a hidden thing.
0: Depression so, is something that, yeah.
1: Depression is, but well, people are talking about that more. The ultimate penalty that some people pay for mm. their own sensitivity Yeah, is, is taking their own life at yeah. times, if that's the reason why they do it. And it's often seen as a death of shame and no-one talks about it. And I think for many people, they'll get some relief that somebody like you's been prepared to talk openly and honestly. About I think. hope so. No, I don't know how else to finish this <laughs> evening apart from saying, Sam, honestly, that's been a wonderful conversation. Thank hey you, Sam This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible
0: manufacturing.